If you don't know, my name is Chris. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and we aren't we aren't really in a sermon series right now, uh, but we're, we are hitting some topics that are maybe a little difficult, or maybe complex is a better word. Uh, Bruce talked about uh, sin three weeks ago. Then I did forgiveness. Then last week we talked about the election a little bit because. Uh, Apparently we're in like a political season or something. Um, Today I want to look at the relationship of women to the church. And this is a topic that's a little bit hard to teach on. Maybe not because of the reason you would think, but because to to be thorough enough to do it justice, I would have to talk for like four hours. All right, so because there's just so much context to some of the scripture that people really, people really latch onto as it pertains to their beliefs. On this topic. So, so when I'm done, if you find yourself going, well, he didn't talk about that scripture wherever that says, well, I know, I know I didn't. Just understand I would have loved to, but we can only do so much in the time that we have. All that to say, we're going to look at what the Bible says in overview today. All right. I'm going to hit a bunch of scripture. There's a lot of material, so I'm going to try not to, but I might go a little bit longer than normal, but it's an important topic. All right. So that's kind of our plan. And as you may know, there's a lot of disagreement in churches about women and what their role is. Uh, in some churches, women are not allowed to teach. In uh, some, some don't let women be in leadership. In some churches, they're not allowed to usher or baptize or lead small groups. I heard of one church where they have this. They had a deacon board for men and a deaconess board for women, even though the Bible never talks about anything like that. Um, there's a church that I read about where that the men at the church serve communion. Women iron the tablecloth that covers the communion table. So that's the role they play in the communion service. So the question for us is, what's God's plan for men and women? And we're going to look at what the Bible says about that. And one of the most important principles of Bible study is to reach a biblical position on any issue, especially complex issues. Uh, We have to make a decision based on what theologians and, and super smart people call the preponderance of evidence in the Scripture. right? And that means all of Scripture, not just one isolated passage or text, but the preponderance or the whole of Scripture. Because the Bible studied carefully in its entirety as a whole is our authority as a church. We, we do not just pick and choose what we want to see and read. The Bible, not culture, not trends, not society, but the entirety of the Scripture is our guide. This is a complex issue, and well-meaning, really bright Christians disagree about it. So every church has to decide what their practices will be. Every church has to decide, will we put place restrictions on women exercising their gifts? You know, there's a lot of other theological issues where Christians disagree, things about the end times and stuff like that, that the church doesn't have to take a formal position on. And generally, if there's an issue where well-meaning Christians disagree, we generally don't take a formal stance on it one way or the other, unless it involves a practice where we must take a stand. This is one of those issues where every church has to decide what its practices will be. Because how you believe on this topic will inform how you do things as a church. And and we need to give rationale for that to the body. And and I'll lay my hand out on the table right here at the beginning. I believe as our church and our our leadership um, that when you take into account the whole Bible, The overwhelming evidence is that God's plan for the human race is that 
It be a community of men and women where, where they share equally in the giftings of the Holy Spirit, in the image of God, and in the ministry of the kingdom. So let's talk about that. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we get a glimpse of God's original intention for humans. Why did God create human beings, male and female, in the first place? What was his original idea? Now, there's a little phrase that runs all the way through the first chapters, and I won't take time to read all those verses, but these phrases are that God spoke things into being, it was so, God saw that it was good. If you just kind of leaf through that first chapter, verses 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, you see it over and over again. God spoke, it was so, God saw that it was good. That's why it's very jarring when we come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says in Genesis 2, 18, the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a, a helper suitable for him. All up to this point, it is good, it is good, it is good. All of a sudden, there's this very jarring stop in verse 18, and God said it's not good. Aloneness, God says, is not good. So God is going to make a helper for him. Now, as a kid, I kind of remember thinking that the idea here was that man had a lot of work to do. He had a lot to do, but he couldn't get it all, all the work done. Very busy guy. And so, so God gave him kind of this assistant. right? That they could, he could delegate stuff to somebody a little bit lower down on the org chart that could run for coffee while he subdued the earth. You know? There's a problem with this understanding. That word translated helper is used a number of times in the Old Testament. Anyone want to guess who's, who it's used most often to refer to? It's actually, it's God himself. The word translated helper here is used most often in the Old Testament to refer to God. For example, in Psalm 33, verse 20, it says, We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Now, if that word is most often used for God, then clearly our help here does not mean someone who's lower on the status chain than the one that they are trying to help, because most often God is referred to as the one that's a helper. Notice something else here. God does not say Adam's not getting his chores done, so I'll give him an employee to help him out with those. God says it's not good for man to be what? To be alone. Therefore, for that reason, I will make a suitable helper. It wasn't uh, not enough time, need some help issue. It was a community issue. She was created as Adam's peer from his side, literally from his very same essence, and they are equally indispensable. Then God gives a command. Look back at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God gives the creation mandate, and what I want you to notice here is who, who, who the command is given to. Verse 28, God blessed who? Them. God blessed them and said to them, be, multiple, be fruitful and increase in numbers. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. I don't really know how you rule over fish. I feel like you could yell at fish all day and they wouldn't do what you wanted. But he goes on to talk about the rulership of his creation. The scripture is very careful to say that God gives the mandate to rule, to reign, to have dominion, to protect, to nourish, and to care for the earth to both man and woman, to them. There's no hint in the scripture of any hierarchy. It does not say that the man is to have dominion or authority over the woman. So those of you who are women here this morning, let let there be no doubt about your worth in God's eyes. You You are made in his image and you were made to reign. 
You were not made to, to reign over man, and you were not made to be reigned over by man, but to rule and work side by side. So in Genesis 1, God's original intention was that man and women are equally made in his image, that they were created to know community with one another, and they were made together to rule over earth. That's the original plan. Then chapter 3 comes. Chapter 3 comes, with chapter 3 comes the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, there's disobedience, there's the fall, and there's, there's the curse. Now there are many losses because of the curse. Uh, loss of innocence, people alienated from their work. Before the fall, there, there was work, but there was no frustration attached to it. Now there's frustration, we are alienated from it, the fear of death comes, there's also a loss of community. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. It says, To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Now notice this next line. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now it's very clear here that men having dominion over women was not God's original intention before the fall. It's part of the curse. It's part of the curse, just like pain from childbirth, just like alienation from labor, and those sorts of things. The results of the curse are not a good thing. And we aren't to make our theological stand on the losses as a result of the curse. The curse is what Christ came to redeem us from, to set us free from, to take the curse on himself so that we could be liberated from it. The idea of one gender ruling over another was not God's plan laid out at the beginning of creation. Because of the fall, the relationship between male and female has now become a power struggle. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been hurt. Maybe you're, you're being hurt by someone of the opposite sex. It may be that you're in a relationship, maybe, maybe a marriage, and you're locked in a power struggle. Or you may have a heart filled with resentment or bitterness. Please remember, men and women are not enemies. Our enemy is the evil one. He's the one that wanted to strike at the unity between man and woman. And he did, and we still carry the fallout from that. Inequality between sexes is part of the curse, part of what Jesus came to redeem us from. Part of what that means is that we as Christians are to help men and women to once again know the joy and the dignity of co-dominion and being equal bearers of the image of God. Even in the Old Testament, there are women in the work of God that are significant when you look at them. God chose several women in the Old Testament to be prophets, uh, to speak authoritatively on his behalf. I'm just going to quickly go through these. I won't take the time to read through each one of these scriptures, but please uh, jot them down so you can study them later if you want. In Exodus 15, verse 20, Miriam is called a prophet. In Numbers 12, Miriam is called prophet or to whom the Lord spoke. When the people of Israel escaped Pharaoh, it was Miriam who led the Israelites into the first corporate worship service. Micah 6.4 says, we'll look at this one. It says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to you, also Aaron and Miriam. Those were the three that God considered leaders of Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 22, there's a female prophet named Huldah. At the same time, Josiah was the king of Israel. He was a reformist king. He wanted to lead the people back to God, but Israel was at a crisis point, and they needed spiritual renewal. They needed a word from God, and, and here are Josiah's options. He can consult 
Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, or Huldah. Four guys who have books of the Bible or a woman. He chooses the female prophet, Huldah. Josiah sends the high priest, the chief of staff, the ruling officials to this woman prophet named Huldah. She gives teaching, she authenticates the word of God, and she prophesies and gives direct command from God to the priest and to the king. For people who take the position that God is opposed to women teaching and leading men, then why would God have the king and the high priest go to a woman for authoritative instruction if that goes against his own will? Another place in the Old Testament, look at this one too, Judges chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. It says, Deborah, a prophet of the wife Lapidoth, was, what's the word, leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord God of Israel commands you to go take with you 10,000 men in Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. So Barak was, Barak, Barak was kind of a general of the troops, and he said to her, uh, If you go with me, I'll go, but if you don't, uh, if you don't go with me, I won't go. So, here's the story. Barak, was the name, whose name meant lightning, he's this powerful figure, he won't go to battle without Deborah, who's, who in Hebrew, whose name in Hebrew means honeybee. Deborah was a judge, which meant she was the highest leader in Israel. She was married, um, she was married but Deborah, not her husband, was chosen by God to be the leader of his people, the people of Israel, which included her husband. So if she was leading Israel, one of, one of the people she was leading was her husband. The question is, if God were opposed to a woman in leadership, why would he do that? What's really, what's really surprising about these accounts in the Old Testament to me is, uh, the Scriptures does not say that Deborah was chosen as a leader because no man was spiritually mature enough to step up to the plate. It just simply records that account. It simply accepts that these women were God's leaders and God's voices. Miriam and Deborah and Huldah are joined by many other faithful women. Rebecca, Ruth, Modia, Isaiah's wife Esther, Queen Esther. These women spoke for God. They led nations. They sanctioned scripture. They guided nations back to God. This is Old Testament. And that's a very quick overview of some of the women in the Old Testament. Let's look at what Jesus thought of of women in the New Testament. Jesus is unique among rabbis of his day, um, especially in his treatment of women. Rabbis generally believed that women were inferior. There was some variety on this, but one ancient rabbinic saying said, it is better for the Torah, the book of the law, to be burned than to be taught to a woman. There was an ancient well-known prayer that is found in several texts that Jewish men would pray daily. Blessed art thou, O God, who did did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. A devout rabbi wouldn't even talk to women. And in fact, there was a group of rabbis, and I'm not, I'm not even making this up. They were, they were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. They believed that to even look at a woman would lead a man astray, would, would cause them to sin. So they walked all the time 
with their eyes either down at the ground, or if they would, if they thought there was a woman in their peripheral vision, they would close their eyes so they wouldn't see her. They were always bumping into buildings and falling off curbs and stuff like that. They were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. True story. Well, against this backdrop, this culture, you begin to see how revolutionary Jesus' attitude toward women was. Again, I'm not going to take the time to read each of these texts, but you can just jot, you may just want to jot them down. In John chapter 4, verse 27, earlier in Jesus' ministry, he comes to the Samaritan woman at the well, and in verse 27 of John chapter 4 it says, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want, or why are you talking with her? So I don't know if you can kind of put yourself in the scene, but it's so awkward that nobody even addresses it. Right? You can just tell that something weird has gone on, and literally they show up, and the Bible tells us that nobody says anything. The disciples don't go, "Hey, is everything all right? Why, why are you talking to that woman?" It was so awkward. It just, it just says they were surprised. Why were they surprised? Because rabbis didn't talk to women in Jesus' day. It wasn't done, but Jesus did. He, he just didn't talk to her. He engaged her in a theological discussion about worship. She becomes his ambassador to a whole town in Samaria. And he didn't just speak to women. He allowed women to touch him. You remember the sinful woman in Luke 7? You know, imagine the scandal when she lets down her hair, which was illegal for a woman to do in public. The belief back then was that man can't handle that kind of thing. Right. She, she let down her hair, anointed the feet of Jesus, and he received it, and he loved her like a sister. He told her her sins were forgiven, commended her for her faith. This just wasn't, wasn't done. Let's go to Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women. So notice this. He's traveling from town to town in his ministry. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now in modern times, we tend to just skip over words like this, but, but do you have any idea how unprecedented they were in Jesus' day? To have a rabbi traveling with a group of men and women going together, relating to one another as brothers and sisters. This just was not done. Women are the ones helping to bankroll this mission. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Jesus apparently did not find this demeaning. He welcomes it. It's amazing. Now turn over a page or two to Luke chapter 10, verse 38. First, I want to give you kind of the context about a phrase that we're going to see in this passage. It's a phrase that has to do with somebody at somebody's feet, doing something at somebody's feet. Uh, For instance, in Acts 22, Paul is talking about his own life, and he says, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus. I studied under, and I was at the feet of Gamaliel. To be at the feet of someone was a technical expression, a technical term for being someone's disciple, for being a rabbi's disciple. So, so Paul is saying, I was, at Gamaliel, I was Gamaliel's graduate student. I was his disciple. Now one other thing to note here, there's no record of any rabbi in Jesus' day having a female disciple. None. Now look at Luke chapter 10, verse 38. 
As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who did what? Who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had been made, had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it, is, and it will not be taken from her. <clears throat> now in our day, we read the story and we make it about Mary and Martha's temperaments, about being busy or, or not being busy or something like that. But the, the startling point of this story for any first century reader would have been that there was a woman who sat at Jesus' feet. And that Jesus didn't send her away to help Martha, but commended her. Jesus says this will not be taken away from her. You know, I'm so grateful that we serve a Savior who has the boldness to say, it's a new day for women. I want women as well as men to sit at my feet, to learn from me and to serve me. I'm so grateful that Jesus cherishes the gifts of my wife and my daughters as seriously and as deeply as he cherishes the gifts of me or any other man. In Jesus' day, it's a new day, or as the Bible likes to constantly refer to it, there is now a new creation. In John chapter 17, verse 20 through 21, Jesus is he's reflecting on the heart of the Father. This is Jesus' last prayer before he goes to the cross. These are his last words. Um, that's, a, what, that's probably why they were, were recorded for us. When someone was going to pass away, he would kind of lean in to hear those last words and to remember. These are Jesus' last words. And here again, he echoes the intention of God. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Through Jesus, it's a new day. Jesus has come to set things right. Jesus has come to redeem us from the curse. And women continued to play a crucial role in Jesus' life right up to the very end. When he was crucified, it was a small group of women who continued to follow him all the way to the cross. In Matthew 28, verse 10, we're told that women served as the first witnesses to his resurrection. Once again, this is very significant in the first century, to the first century readers. Because in those days, women were not allowed to serve as, as a witness in legal proceedings. If somebody committed a murder, it could be watched by 100 women, and if no man saw it, well, you know, too bad, murdered guy, because women had no legal status as witnesses. But they're the witnesses of the resurrection. In fact, one of the marks of the authenticity of the resurrection for, for historians that study these sorts of things, one of the reasons they say that they can trust these accounts is because nobody in the first century would have made up a story where women were witnesses and the only witnesses. It is to these women, and specifically Mary Magdalene, he first commands, go and tell, go and tell, which is why Mary is called the apostle to the apostles. She is the first to witness and testify the resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus, there's a new day for women. Now turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Or just read it up here. I know I'm moving fast. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 14. After Jesus ascended, while the believers were waiting for Pentecost, we're told the disciples would meet up in the upper room. Uh, verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Luke wants us to know that women, as well as men, are part of the, this community, waiting for the church to be born. Then it is born, and the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, and Peter gets up and makes one of the most important sermons in the history of the church. Uh, look at Acts chapter 2, 16, 17, and 18. Peter's explaining what's going on at Pentecost, and he says, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Out of all the text in the Old Testament that Peter could reference, he references here as evidence the promise that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, male and female, and that there would come a spirit, there would come a spirit-inspired prophetic ministry that would include both men and women, without regard to gender, that would be the signature of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the church. That can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. No other power except for God's can break down barriers like that. In fact, that's exactly what happened. That evidence of the Spirit is seen in the lives of women in the early church. Acts chapter 21, verse 9. I'm not going to read it right now, but if you're taking notes, be sure to jot down that reference. Acts chapter 21, verse 9 tells us about four women, the four daughters of Philip, who prophesied. They had a ministry of prophecy. Prophecy simply means to speak authoritatively the word of God. Now, some people take the position, they'll say that women, that women could prophesy, but they did not, you know, that did not involve authoritative teaching. That the prophecy is a lesser gift. I don't think that at all is demonstrated in the scripture. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 31. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. In other words, one of the results of prophecy is learning. There is a teaching function to it. So women were doing this for the men and women in their congregation. All right, we're going to Acts chapter 18, verse 18. You keeping up? Good? Acts chapter 18, verse 18 says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. I want to pause there for a second because the order of names in Greek literature is very significant. Whoever is named first is considered leader. All right. For instance, if you look at the life of Paul when he was converted, in the early days before he became a leader, a leader of the missions he did, his name would always be mentioned second. Once he became the leader of the missions, his name is always mentioned first. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. In that day, husbands were virtually always mentioned first because they had by culture higher status. We still we actually still do this to some degree. When you write a letter, it's always Mr. and Mrs., right? When we first meet this couple at the beginning of Acts 18, Aquila's name is mentioned first. But once it gets into their ministry, Priscilla's name is always mentioned first. Look at verse 24 through 26. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately 
though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in a synagogue. Notice, notice her name first. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Even though Apollos is called well-versed in Scripture, he is, re- he is receiving authoritative instruction from a woman. There's nothing in the Scripture to suggest that she was doing it under the authority of her husband. If anything, because of the intentional order of names, it suggests that her husband was doing it under her leadership. Priscilla and Aquila are an amazing example of a couple living in loving, mutual, submissive relationship, sharing in the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ together. Go to another one. Another amazing passage. I love this one. You can go to Romans chapter 16 if you like. It's one of those passages everybody kind of skips over. Uh, It's a lot of names. Uh, In Romans 16, Paul is writing to honor a bunch of people in the church. And in this passage... Just read through the whole passage sometime. Many of them, actually most of them, are women. We're just going to read about a couple of them here. Romans 16, verse 1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Chentria. Chentria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now these are... Remarkable words about a woman in these days. This was the standard introduction for someone bearing a letter. Okay, I commend to you this person. I ask you to receive her in a way worthy of the saints. It was the was the standard introduction for someone carrying a letter. So, so most likely, what this means is Phoebe was the one who carried the letter from Paul to the church in Rome. She was the one that carried what would become the Book of Romans to the church in Rome. And the custom of the day was that whoever carried the letter explained everything in it to make it clear to those who would be reading it. Now, if you've ever studied the book of Romans, imagine being the one that that people expected to answer the questions. What did Paul mean when he said that? It's a crazy complex book. And Paul underscores her authority and her competence. It's a woman that is going to have that role to explain to the church in Rome this letter that would become Romans. Look down at verse 7. Another remarkable woman. I remember when I first learned about this verse, how how surprising it was to me. It says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Now Andronicus is a male name. Junia is a female name. This is a woman, and the clearest meaning of this verse is that these two individuals are counted as apostles. They are outstanding among the apostles. This would mean that a woman would have had the title of apostle. This is one of the highest titles you could ever have. This is this has bothered translators so much that a few translators have changed the spelling from Junia to Junius, which would have been a man's name, a masculine name. But it's very clearly a woman's name. It wasn't like Chris or something like that. It could be male or female. Junia was a woman's name, and she was counted by Paul as outstanding among the apostles. In, in verse 6 and 12, Paul mentions specifically four other women, Maria, Tryphenia, Tryphosa, and Persis. These four women are the only people mentioned in this chapter who Paul commends for their hard work. The wording he uses, worked hard, is a word that specifically means working in the gospel of Jesus. 
Paul describes his own ministry in the same way, using the same words. We see scattered throughout the New Testament glimpses of women where extraordinary things are happening in the church. There's women that are very different from the kinds of things that are happening in the culture around them. I want to look at one last one, Galatians 3.28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there was a prayer in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, and it is found in several different sources in the ancient world, that every morning Jewish males would wake up and pray, Blessed Blessed art thou, O God, for thou did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. This is the prayer that would get prayed. Paul himself was probably brought up to say that prayer. It's no accident that Galatians 3.28 is worded the way it is. Now why would males pray that prayer? Why would Jewish males pray this prayer? I don't think it was to discourage Gentiles or slaves or women. It wasn't meant unkindly. Jewish men would say that because if they weren't Jewish, if they weren't males, if they, if they weren't free, they knew that they could not participate fully in the community of faith. It was out of thankfulness that they prayed the prayer. Paul's prayer here is a brand new idea, that God was creating a community where all could participate freely. The old prayer is not valid anymore. He says there's a neither Jew nor Gentile. People were still Jewish and Gentile, but those distinctions are irrelevant now. Paul says there is neither slave nor free. Paul is saying, no, no, in Christ, those old class distinctions are irrelevant to your participation in the body of Christ. And then this amazing last phrase, neither male nor female. When someone is in Christ, whether they are male or female is no longer the most important thing about them. They still remain male and female. There are differences. But that distinction is irrelevant to their full potential and full participation in the life of a church. The old prayer isn't valid anymore. So, so here's a question I have for you. Will you allow God's word to form your own understanding and attitude about the role of men and women in the church? Will you submit to the Holy Spirit on this as best you can? Maybe you're here this morning and you've just kind of you've just been kind of parroting the words or the positions of somebody you heard a long time ago. Will you be willing to study on your own, pray and think, and work hard towards your own best understanding what the Scripture teaches? Because maybe maybe you're involved in some ugly battles with someone of the opposite gender, you know, male or female. Maybe you're pushing for dominance and power. Maybe you're angry and you've been handling that anger in an inappropriate ways or pushing for something more than equality. Maybe you've, had, maybe you've had wounds from a relationship with a spouse or a parent that has colored your whole attitude on this issue. And you need healing. Maybe for whatever reason there's just a, a stubborn spirit inside you. I know what that feels like. You've just dug in and you need to ask God for a tender heart and an open mind. Will you do that? I'm going to ask us all to make a commitment that we'll study and learn and have a submitted spirit as best we can. Because when men and women work together, amazing things happen. Amen? 
Many Christians, as you know, disagree on this issue. Many wonderful Christians and many wonderful churches teach different positions. And I want to be respectful to them all. A lot of churches have a different stance, but I want to say that I am glad that I am at this one. I am so grateful that I and my family get to benefit from the gifts of men and women. There have been many times when God has used the teaching and leading gifts of both men and women to convict me of something that needs to challenge me, or to change in me, to challenge me to grow, to assure me of God's goodness. There are so many of you who have served with all the gifts that God has given you, and we wouldn't be who we are if you didn't do that. I know there's a lot of churches around, but I am so grateful I get to be a part of this one. Because my life wouldn't be the same if I were not part of a church family where we're trying to live as one in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Uh, we'll just have the ministry team come forward. If you would like prayer, you can, you can get prayed for. Um, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how scripture, scriptures that we have read thousands of times over in our lifetime, still challenge us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you will help us as a congregation and as, as men and women to seek the unity that you have created. Help us to grow together because we're in it together, Lord. Lord, I thank you for this church. I pray, Lord, that we might right now be found faithful so that others may come to know you. Future generations will be able to come to know God. We pray that you will Receive all honor and glory. And we pray this in your son's name. Everyone said, Amen.